encourage you to take your Bibles out now and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, we're going to be in verses 28 through 44. And actually, you can actually put your finger into Luke 23 because that's where we're actually going to start to give some context to. Uh, we're starting later to give context to what happened earlier uh, in our in our message today. So, a new kind of king, a new kind of king. Now, we got a lot of phrases in our culture uh, that talks about you know, leadership and being a king. You know, cash is king and. And just different things like that. And uh, kings and rulers of this earth try to stay in their leadership positions forever and ever. And two of the major countries in our world changed their constitutions over the last few years to make sure their leaders can stay in power for as long as they want. But I'm just going to tell you, everyone, try as anyone will even if you cling tightly with death, you'll lose it. You lose your empire, you lose your kingdom, you lose all of that. It's all left behind. Now, every Palm Sunday, and as a church, really all the time for us, we know Christ. And we rejoice in him because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one that forever reigns. And he's a, he's a different kind of king. He's a new kind of king compared to anything else. You think about Jesus. He didn't have the right background, right? He didn't have the right background. The guy's from oh, the twigs up in Nazareth. You know, that, that, it says that in Scripture. Not the twigs part. Jesus, Jesus didn't say the right things according to the leaders at that time. Jesus was a truth teller. He just simply told the truth. So he didn't play by the political rules. And when we look at Luke 23, when Jesus is before Pilate, Pilate is confused. It's really an interesting section of scripture because there's two different times he's in front of Pilate. And both times, Pilate's like in verse uh, 14 of Luke 23, Pilate says, you brought this man to me as one who incites people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found in this man no guilt of what you're accusing him of. And Pilate's like, if this guy is trying to overthrow the Roman government, I don't see it. I mean, that's what Pilate is, is doing there. He's like, you know, I, I'll, okay, I'll punish him for your silly religious rules, but I'm going to release him. And they're crying, no, away with him, away with him, release Barabbas. And, and Pilate's like, why? And it says that in verse 22. Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt worthy of death, therefore I will punish him and release him. And then Pilate shows how big of a wimp he was, and it was all about his power and his standing, and when they started to rebel a little against him, a lot against him, what did he do? I'm going to wash my hands, and I'll let you guys kill him. 
And the reason I start there with Pilate is that for us today, maybe we look at Jesus and we see, like Pilate, we actually see a different, if this guy's king, this is a different kind of king. Pilate actually saw that. He saw that there was obviously something different. We saw that he saw that he wasn't guilty. But Pilate didn't stand up to the culture, to the crowd. That sounds kind of familiar too. Jesus doesn't fit into the world's category of a king, of a leader. And that's really the beauty of the gospel. Jesus isn't the king that so many people expected. But Jesus is the king that we need. Jesus is the the kind of king that would leave his glory, would lay down his life for us so that we would be brought into his kingdom. Yes, Jesus is a different kind of king, and it's the kind of king that we need. And going back to Luke 19 then, Luke's account of the triumphal entry of Christ can bring really our souls into a regal understanding of Jesus and his kingship and what it means for us. So I encourage you to jump back to chapter 19 and take a look at that with me this morning. Luke's account is very powerful. I, I, I'm a, I love how Luke does things because he's, he's like, here's the bullet points. Here's what's going on. Here, here are the things. It's very easy to follow the line of understanding. John opens up the theological box for us even more than Luke does. But even in this section of scripture, Luke does some very pointed things to make us understand what type of king Jesus is. You see, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus was at the end of the journey that had begun some nine months before. When he purposely began to zigzag through Galilee, then then Samaria, then Perea, and then finally Judea. And during this final journey, he had ministered in at least 35 different locations. And timing the journey just right in order to end up in Jerusalem for Passover. And so now it's Passover, and he's back in Bethany on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Expectations are running high. He had just earlier raised Lazarus from the dead. And the sensational news of that event, I'd say that would be fairly sensational. The news of that event had spread around Jerusalem. The numbers of those watching where he was going and his entourage were starting to enlarge again. 
Mary had dramatically anointed Christ with the flask of alabaster, uh, this ointment, and Jesus had defended the fact that she did that, saying that, hey, this all points to my burial. Tons of Jewish people were coming out of Jerusalem to see Jesus, to, to probably see Lazarus as well, to go, this is pretty cool. And the religious leaders of that time were counseling together on how they would do what? Kill him. We got to get rid of this guy. Why? Because many people were following. Many people were believing in him. So there was this also this tension then in Jerusalem. Would Jesus make his move? You got you to gotta feel all of this. Would, would Jesus make his move? Is this it? If so, when? And, and if he makes his move, what will the authorities do? It's very similar to the things that happen today. And so we see in this text First of all, the the deliberate preparation that's going on here. Verse 29, let's just start there. And it happened that when he approached Bethage and Bethany near the Mount called of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you in which as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, because the Lord has need of it. So when those who were sent departed, they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said, of course, uh, why are you taking my donkey? Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they go, okay. Well, no, they did. But why would they do that? Because of everything that they've been hearing. And of course, it was also prophesied. We'll get to that in a second. But it fits in there, this little hamlet that was there between Jerusalem and Bethany. A a traveler approaching Jerusalem from the east would come to Bethany. It's about two miles out, then pass through Bethage on the slope of the Mount of Olives on his way into Jerusalem. And Jenny and I were there just a few months ago, and it is a nice thing to say it's a slope. (laughs) It It is, you are going down. And then you have to go back up to get into the city. But I mean, it is, you walk, you walk down the Garden of Gethsemane area in there. I mean, you are like trying not to roll down. So it is, it is steep. And that helps you kind of picture the fact that when you get up there, you can see many things. And on this Palm Sunday, Jesus was walking in front of his disciples when he came to the area there 
on the ascent of Mount of Olives. He sends those two disciples out. Scriptures are silent on how he knew it was there. Didn't really need to mention it. I mean, we, from our perspective, understand, well, of course he knows. We summarize that the owners give it to him because why? They heard of the ministry. They heard of what was going on. He was growing in fame. It was one of those things at that moment where, you know, if you were walking by and, and someone said, hey, the, the president of the United States, let's assume this is a president that you are happy with. The president of the United States needs this. You would go, well, of course I'm going to help out, right? I mean, that's what you would do. But this is all premeditated. It is all carefully coordinated. The, the day and the hour have been selected in eternity past. The time is precise. The mode of the entry uh, a previously unridden donkey was carefully chosen. What was interesting is that never before, Jesus never before had done anything to promote a public demonstration of who he was. If you look throughout the Gospels, what did he constantly do until it was the right time? And this is the right time. What did he constantly do? He would withdraw from the crowds but now he did something different he's inviting the attention he's actually courting the danger and and you think okay why why a young donkey i mean in our culture that's totally lost on us. Well, 500 years earlier than this event we see in Luke, Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was Jesus doing? He was going, I'm the Messiah. There's no doubt about it. Anyone that ever says, well, Jesus never said or Jesus never did anything to say that he was the Messiah, does not know what Jesus did. This is a blatant act of saying, hey, everyone, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. He's identifying himself like that. And, and riding that donkey does two things. First, it identifies him with the royal line of David, especially David himself, because the donkey was regarded as the royal animal before and during David's reign. And after David, this is what's interesting, after David, 
the Hebrew kings and, and warriors switched to horses. And the donkey was considered unsuited for the dignity of the kings. But Jesus identified with the emblem due to the specific prophecy that was exact and perfectly reveals his position. So that's first. That's one reason there's the use of the donkey. And the second one really speaks of what's going on and who Jesus is in spirit. What did Zacharias say? Your king comes, righteous and having salvation. He uses a really interesting word that you don't usually use for a leader. Gentle. Did you catch that in there? Gentle. When you picture someone riding in victoriously into a city, I mean, if you've ever seen Ben-Hur, if you've ever seen, you know, just go down the list, you don't see a dude riding a camel. You don't see a dude riding a donkey. You see like this war horse, right? And Jesus comes trotting in on a donkey. And it's intrinsic into his attitude in life. Skip over to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Paul says this about Jesus. Your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Riding in on the donkey represents being humble, being sacrificial. Even the fact that the donkey was borrowed reinforces the idea. They didn't go and like, hey, Jesus needs the donkey. Here's here's a million bucks because Jesus deserves the best. There was a blending of the deity and the dignity of the king and the poverty, the poor in spirit that Jesus was in the instructions. The Lord needs it. It portrays both the position of king and what? Servant. You see, Jesus then was unlike any other king who ever lived. One pastor in the early 1900s said this very clearly and in a really beautiful way. He said it this way, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects, passing smoking altars, and followed by captive kings and princes and chains. Instead of that, just a meek and lowly man riding on a borrowed donkey. We have to keep that image before us on the day Christ rode humbly into Jerusalem. You see, that Jerusalem 
was dominated by Roman pomp and splendor. But who was actually in control? Jesus. It was all premeditated. It was all pre-planned. It was all going exactly as planned. There's a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And in that, speaking of the Passion Week, the author says the wheel of history did not crush him. Jesus was turning the wheel. And we move on into verse 35. Having secured the donkey, the march begins. Let's just look at two verses for a moment here, verses 35 and 36. And they brought it to Jesus, and after they threw their garments on the colt, they put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments on the road. Jesus was the center of attention. All eyes were focused on him. All homage was was given to him. Not only did the exuberant followers place their clothing on the donkey as a saddle, basically, they flung the garments to the ground really as a gesture of, of reverence, indicating the willingness for him to take everything they had. Read verse 37. Now, as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God, rejoicing with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. So this road goes down to the Mount of Olives. You've got all of these people from Bethany and area joining in. The procession becomes exuberant. And when they reach the descent where they catch a glimpse of the, of the southeastern corner of Jerusalem, cheers are running, uh, ringing out from that mountain. And, and look what verse 38 then says. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. All right, Luke has now given us a theological feast in one statement. This is a line from the praise psalms in Psalm 113 through 118. These psalms were chanted at the end of the Passover supper and at the Feast of the Tabernacles. This particular line from Psalm 118.26 was actually changed by the travelers as a way of greeting one another at one point. Because in Psalm 118 it reads, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What is it now in this section? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What is being said here? He's the guy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now it is blessed is the king. 
who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add, for good measure, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Well, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now, the heavenly chorus, the angels sang of peace on earth, while the earthly throng now sings of what? Peace in heaven. You catch it, something's happened. They were singing about something they did not completely understand. Peace on earth is dependent on peace in heaven. And when it comes down from above, it is only when man finds peace with God that there is peace on earth. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is the one that brings peace to heaven because he's reconciling man to God. And God is no longer at war with people because they are now pure and holy and blameless in his sight through Christ. This, this is pretty deep. I would love to be able to say all of that like Luke did. There was a great biblical scholar in the mid-1950s that really had a good view on this because they're chanting here, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And this writer really believes that these people are, are being repeatedly met by pilgrims that would be coming out of Jerusalem because the word of his coming has already reached there. So with each new encounter, you know what happens when new people join a, a chant or new people join a parade or, or things? It gets more and more pumped up. It doesn't die down. And the other gospel accounts add to this picture of joy that's coming. John 12, 13, they took palm branches, went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. The palm branches represented a nationalistic desire to be delivered. The palm had been the symbol on the coin of the second Macedonian Maccabean, sorry, Macedonian nuts, nice, but Maccabean <laughs> revolt. What's Hosanna? Save us. Save us. What are they viewing Jesus as? The deliverer. And he was. And he is but not in the way the world always seems to look. Yes, Jesus was in control. Yes, Jesus is making a statement. 
The donkey he rides on prophesied of his position as king, character of servant, a burden bearer. The psalm repeated on the people's lips, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, recalls the messianic character that he is, what he's all about. This is his moment, a moment set before the foundation of the world. And the Pharisees do exactly what you would expect. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke, rebuke these people, your disciples. And you can picture a few different motives for the Pharisees. Hey, we don't want the Romans to get mad. And they're going to end up causing all types of problems for us. So Jesus, calm down a little bit. That could have been one. But more than likely, they're like, oh, our power may be gone. Whatever their motivation, it is interesting to note that Christ replied in a way for everyone to hear. You've got to understand once again that this is a crowd shouting, right? We've seen that. We've heard that. We see that there's a rebuke, and I'm sure the rebuke wasn't, hey, Jesus, would you just tell them all to... Be calm. They had to get their voices over the crowd, right? And considering what Jesus said, I would say it's pretty easy to put into context that Jesus said these words probably in a fairly forceful and loud way that everyone could hear. Because When he says in verse 40, and Jesus answered and said, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. He did not say it like this. Hey guys, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would cry out. That's not the context. It doesn't fit. It actually doesn't fit what Jesus was quoting. The word cry out means shout at the top of your lungs that the whole earth hears. If you are Jesus, what are you going to be saying? I tell you, if these are silent, the stones will cry out. And you got to understand, the crowd was probably like, Yeah! <laughs> the march is deliberate. A march that seals what? His fate. That's what's so interesting about this. It's it's a march that seals his fate. It seals his fate on the cross. If this is premeditated, guess what else is premeditated? The cross. We'll save that for Friday. But there is more to picture here, and I think it's very important to picture that many times we stop 
at verse 40 on, on Palm Sunday. But I think it's very important to understand the king's tears. And as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he cried over it. And that word cry means wail, lament. It's not a, oh, let me get the tear. It is just as forceful as the statement before. Do you get that? When he's writing down, and if you've been there, you instantly, you come over that crest, you instantly get a view of the whole city. It's it's an amazing view. And the whole city's before his eyes. He begins to weep. And it's not with quiet tears, but it's deep. It is, it is from the, the depths of his soul. There in the middle of the road for everyone to see a stun multitude all of a sudden sees Jesus wailing, crying. You have to fix that into your eyes. It does us good, I think, to know that because he's a different kind of king. And he says, why? If you knew in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. It was the unrepentant holy city that would end up being a pile of rubble. Josephus tells us these words. Historian, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand and that part of the wall which enclosed the city on the west. This was to be an encampment for the troops which would be left behind and the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications Roman prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall which encompassed the city, the demolition teams leveled so that no one could come there in the future. They would ever believe that that spot had been inhabited. Josephus wrote that. So the destruction was terrible. The city was raided and stormed and the temple burned just a few decades after this time frame. And and Josephus actually records that the victorious Roman general Titus throws his, his arms heavenward 
and he utters, it says, a groan, and he calls to God to witness that this was not my doing. So then, who was in charge? And that's from outside the Bible. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. See, that's the heart of the king we follow because it's the heart of God. Yes, his body was human, but the heart was divine. And this is how Jesus Christ and God, the Father and the Holy Spirit, and there's sorrow over hearts that miss their day. Because that's what Jesus said, you, you, you miss the day of visitation. You miss the chance. You miss what would actually bring you peace. And what is that? Repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begs us to ask the same question in ourselves then. Will I miss the day of visitation? Will he end up weeping over us in that same type of way? There's an old hymn, the Son of God in tears, the wondering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul, he shed those tears for thee. You see, those, those tears measure the value of everyone's soul. And that is the heart of the king that died for us and, and, and saves us. You see, we can spend hours talking about earthly kings of today, earthly leaders, and for the most part, many things stayed the same with many leaders, power, greed, deception. And actually, it happens to a lot of us when we try to hold on to what we have. But really what ends up happening is that the very best we can do is a little better than just kind of a self-coronation of, I'm King Scott. And it doesn't work. Christ, the new kind of king, shows us how to live, doesn't he? I mean, he called us to live like him. He called us to be his disciples. What does that word mean? It means his followers following in his footsteps, acting and, and being, not just acting, but being in line with him, marching with him and who we are and how we live. Your attitude, once again, as a Paul says it should be the same as who? Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
Jesus came loving our fragmented, evil world, and what did he do? He wept. But he continued to march on to the completion of the task. Those who truly want to live a royal life today, you have to live like Jesus lives. How he did. It is very easy for us to come over the hill of the city, look out of the, at the city, and go, oh, this place is awful. I mean, we had people dying a few blocks down from here yesterday afternoon in a drug deal that went bad. And just right in the parking lot of Trader Joe's. It's easy to go, this place is awful. Burn it. But what did Jesus do? He saw the evil. He didn't say it wasn't evil. He saw the evil and he said, I need to go down there and finish the task that I've been called to do, which is to redeem people. To provide atonement. And then he turns around to us who are believers and what does he say to us who follow him? All right, you've got a mission you don't stand on top of the hill and just say, this place is awful. You go down there and you share the gospel. And yes, maybe only a few will respond. But those few are called. Those few have been predestined by God. Those few need you to be who Jesus called you to be, right? So that's, that's, what, that's what it looks like here. Jesus was an incredible king. Jesus was this. I want to read a poem to you. This person asks, what kind of king are you? A king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A king who keeps his promises, a king who I can trust, a king who can save, a king I want to follow. And so I come to you, King Jesus, not to be served by you, but to serve you and to give my life to you. Use me, King Jesus, all of me. Make me a knight or a bishop or a rook or make me an expendable pawn. I don't care what piece I am so long as yours is the hand that moves me. Because yours is the mighty hand with the outstretched arm. 
Yours is the hand that rules with an iron scepter and knit me together in my mother's womb. What kind of king are you, Lord Jesus? He's a different kind of king. He's the only true king. And we celebrate that new king today. And because we give our lives to him, we then can live a new kind of life. That is what Palm Sunday is all about. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this narrative given to us by Luke, by us knowing the purpose, the predestined purpose of everything that happened on the triumphal entry to let us know that you are a different kind of king, a king that keeps your promises, a king that we can trust, a king that saves, a king that we want to follow. So Lord, we give our lives to you because you gave our, your life for us. Lord, thank you for ruling in a way that destroys wickedness but gives life. So Lord, we thank you for that promise. Lord, I pray right now if there is anyone here today that has not accepted you as Lord and Savior, that they'll come and talk to, to myself or, or to one of our leaders around the room afterwards and just walk through what it means to have you to be the true king of their lives. And Lord, I pray for those of us who are believers right now to live for you and to weep over the evil that is in our world, but to do something about it, and that's share your truth. Be a truth teller, not being afraid to tell the truth of what sin does. And in that process, giving hope, though, in Christ. 